This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. Coming to you, actually, I'm back in my office. The first time, according to my calendar, since August 14th. So, uh, you know, it's nice to to be back. And uh, joining us today for this panel, I'm going to go counterclockwise uh, from what I'm seeing. Uh, We got Mark Tobin from Coffee Microcaps. Mark, what's going on, man? Yes. We got Stephen Keel from Arquitos Capital. Stephen, what's happening? Good to see you. Thanks for having us. Of course. And then, of course, Andy Pragshat from Edgebrook Partners. Andy, what's going on, man? Very awesome to be here again. Great to have you. All right. So today's topic is a, uh, was a great suggestion. It was sent in by this random dude named Mark Tobin, who I guess is also now joining us on the panel. We figured this would just be his, his, his shot to just do an hour-long monologue, right, Stephen? I, we were just going to throw it to him, let him talk, you know? But uh, yeah, it's a smart guy, you know, so, you know, but but I I figured we could also throw it to everybody else on here too. So today's topic is are AGMs dead or a vital tool to gain differential insights and implement shareholder activism? It's a lot to unpack today, but we're going to start, we're going to start, you know, from the top down, you know, we're going to do a little definitions first for those who may not even know what an AGM is. So uh, Mark, the floor is yours. Just, you know, start us off with, you know, a little bit about what an AGM, AGM is and why public companies uh, need to do this. Uh, yeah, so an AGM stands for Annual General Meeting. Uh, happens on an annual basis, generally after the final set of results or final quarter results uh, come out for the year. Um, they're generally fairly uh, standard uh boring events uh, can be um, where, you know, the audit say financials are tabled in front of the shareholders, uh, the shareholders vote on this uh, to accept them. And recent years, then, you know, they've also kind of been used to kind of approve other kind of corporate policies in terms of executive remuneration, uh, environmental policies have become a much more uh, hot button topic at AGMs over the last probably 10 years. Uh, and then you also have, you know, the re-election or uh, appointment of new directors to the, to the, to the, I guess, supervisory board of the company. So that could be a new chairman, new non-exec directors, exec directors. Um, so while, you know, it doesn't, um, I guess, scream as a, I'd like to say an exciting event. There's actually quite a lot of important business uh, happens at the event, especially when it comes to election of directors, uh, changes in directors, and I guess the shareholders uh, expressing a view on remuneration policies and environmental policies. You know, can be a very clear signaling tool to the board that um, the shareholder base might be unhappy with those uh, policies in their current form. 
Right. That was a good, that was a good kickoff point there. And, you know, for those who may want to think like, okay, AGM, I got the definition, you know, what's a well-known one? Well, I think probably the most well-known one is uh, everybody making their, their, their uh, pilgrimage to Omaha for the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. That is an example of an AGM, you know, Tesla has, well, they have their AGM, but I mean, they have all these other days too, battery day and whatnot, but you know, they also have a very well-known AGM because it's your opportunity to hear some of the, the, you know, the Warren Buffett, the Elon Musk to really talk at length about their businesses and reflect not just on what's happened in the last year, kind of give some forecasts for the year ahead, but then also maybe give their outlook from a macro perspective and how their business fits in to what's going on there. So that's kind of full disclosure. I am not a shareholder of, uh, of Berkshire or, or uh, Tesla or Starbucks for that matter, for those who are seeing me drinking this right now, you know, I just got to make sure that's clear. So um, let's dig right in then, you know, at the suggestion of Andy, cause I don't like taking credit for anything. So uh, Andy, Andy had a great idea that we should split this into two halves where, you know, on the first half, we talk about why this is a vital tool and, or maybe potentially not um, for the first half. And then we're going to get into uh, how do you implement shareholder activism now uh, when these AGMs do come up. So let's dig into why these are vital. Steven, for, for you, you know, as actually running a public company, you know, why is the AGM important uh, for, for you as a CEO? Yeah, from the company's perspective, it's a great opportunity to meet with your shareholders. It's been a little bit disappointing this year having to do it virtually. I, I, the, the meetings, uh, we held our, our shareholder meeting virtually, and then the other companies that I've called into as an investor or as you know, company I might be following, uh, you know the question and answer uh, period uh, really has been non-existent with some of the smaller companies, which is a little bit disappointing, because sometimes that interaction can really yield some some valuable information as a shareholder. But at, from the company's perspective, you know I think there's there's really two sides. Some companies want to hide, right? Some companies don't really want to interact with investors. They see investors and shareholders as a distraction, uh, as um, maybe, you know, sometimes they do get harassed, you know, especially in smaller companies, there's some gadflies on the smaller and maybe some of those gadflies are us. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that, that a company may, may look at it in that way and then just put up a wall and not want to communicate and set rules where they just are not there to answer questions. They try to limit them as much as possible. And then on the other spectrum, which I think is the more responsible thing to do and what we do, is we'll stay there all day and answer questions. We take the Berkshire approach, we take the Fairfax approach, the Daily Journal approach, things like that. Boston Omaha does another great annual meeting uh, as well. If, for those of you who, um, who might wanna follow them, I don't, I don't own shares in any of those companies, but follow them all. And it's great, you know, you sit there, you do the business you need to do, which is necessary. Uh, and then you are able to interact with investors and shareholders, answer questions, build trust as well, because there's something about uh, being respectful, uh, even when you get challenged to carefully consider the, the complaint or the question or whatever that might be challenged. And, you know, it, it, sometimes there's information uh, confidential or behind the scenes that a company just is not able to share. And so there's a reasonable reason why the shareholder might not, you know, have the full picture. Uh, and, and, and that's okay. You can share that, you know, you can, you can share that this is, you know, we've had discussions at the board level, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that's how you build trust to know that, you know, face to face, you're shaking hands. I mean, in a normal environment, maybe we're fist bumping next year, 
but uh, <laughs> exactly elbow or, or the foot, whatever we're doing. And hopefully we can do it next year. But I, I think seeing people in person, welcoming them in, showing that you're respectful, that your partners with the shareholders, you're aligned in every respect is, is, is a nice way to build that shareholder base that is long-term oriented and the company should be long-term oriented as well. Uh, and you know, this, this is a tool to, to use to do that. Um, and then on the same, in the same token, you know, look, if you have a, a shareholder base of a bunch of smart long-term shareholders, they might have some great ideas and that's an opportunity for them to begin to share it or for you to build a relationship that they can share it offline uh, after the fact. So I think it's positive all around. And even when you have someone who's, you know, kind of negative or doesn't, understand what's going on, fine. You know, it, it, it's a good opportunity to kind of deal with it and show the other shareholders that, um, that you can be respectful to, to people all across the spectrum there. Uh, so, you know, I think, yeah, I think too often companies just try to kind of stonewall, um, especially smaller companies. And, and I, I think maybe that's, you know, uh, they, they know they're not performing well, or there's an insecurity about kind of the work that they're doing. And, um, you know, that's not the right way to, to go about things, I think. Uh, from a company's per perspective, this is an opportunity. It's not a burden. I couldn't agree with that sentiment more. I mean, Andy, you want to you wanna pick up from there? Yeah, well, I think our question is, uh, you know, AGM, to attend or not to attend, is, that is the question. So, um, the, so the, I've met with maybe a thousand companies, but I haven't attended a thousand AGMs. <laughs> probably a couple dozen. Um, so I guess a broader question is, what information do you really want to collect on a company as an investor? So the kind of way I think about it is, maybe there's three dimensions to, or three dimensional views of a company. So the first dimensional view is kind of just seeing the press releases or the news. Kind of, it's probably what 95% of investors do. They just kind of look at the news flow. Maybe they read the stock message boards. Um, that's kind of a one-dimensional view and the other extreme would be probably a three-dimensional view which is you work as an executive in the company and you see everything so it's kind of that's probably a three-dimensional view where I would say a, a two-dimensional view in, be in between is to, to speak with management so um, and that's I, I actually view that a bit as a bit sacred because you know the CEO and CFO don't have that much time often and they're taking time out of their busy schedule to talk to you as an investor. So I'm, I'm trying to be really respectful of their time. But at the same time, management usually is on a script, so to speak. Like they have kind of a message for, for shareholders. So the beauty of the AGM is I kind of see it as a, um, you're, it's between talking to management and working in the company. So it's kind of a two and a half dimensional view. <laughs> so it's, and the, so the bonus for me for attending the AGM is to actually talk to the other directors. And I usually just ask them straight up, like what their opinion on the company is, why are they on the board? Why are they excited about the company? And sometimes if it's a small company, you could actually go around this, the whole the board, the, 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 the conference room table, and they can kind of each share in three to five minutes, you know, why they're there. Um, and a second cool aspect of the AGM is to meet kind of the, the VPs or maybe the second level of employees underneath the, the CEO and CFO because they usually um, don't have a script. So they're usually more off script and 
they can even give you potentially a tour of the office or even a, a demo or a, a kind of a peek behind what's really going on. Um, so that's what I kind of, that's why I go to the AGMs is I, I would call that, that uh, two and a half dimensional view. And I have to admit, I've, I've gone to two AGMs in the COVID times and I was actually the only shareholder sh to show up on both of them. <laughs> so, uh, um, but it, it was great because I got a tour of both places and got to meet the um, uh, VPs of both companies and some directors. So um, again, it goes back to what your goal is. What, what, it, what dimension of information do you want on a company? Well, Andy, I gotta, I gotta follow up with you right there. I mean, for you, there's, it's, it's a two part question. You know, what, what type of information do you usually, I mean, I'm sure it's company dependent, but what's usually your goal when you're deciding whether or not to go to an AGM and the type of information that you're looking to gather? Um, well, you know, I, I've talked about my three filters that I've used before. So the first filter is I want to see a company kind of best in the world, so to speak, in, in their niche, like they're, they're kind of world-class in their niche. And then the second filter is um, they're ideally, you know, profitable or close to profitable. And then with the potential of the three to, for three to five X increase in the earnings and the valuation over three to five years. So usually before going into the meeting, I already kind of have some determination on those two, on those two, but I'm really, focused on my third filter, which is really assessing management. That's and that's really a qualitative um, screen. So the cool thing is what I'm usually going in is I'm looking at the energy level of the management, but also energy level of the company, kind of a cultural energy level. And you kind of know sometimes walking in, if there's a bunch of empty, you know, cubicles and guys are kind of not wanting to talk to you versus it's high energy, everyone's on their feet, everyone's moving doing things, you kind of can know sometimes the energy level uh, after just spending some time there. And then the two other factors I kind of try to get into that are qualitative are understanding the company's focus on quality. And, you know, that can vary on what the type of the business is, but you kind of see their attention to quality. Um, and it could be small things, but um, so manufacturing company might be the ISO 9000 and begin to you know, walk the floor and see how they're implementing like some very specialized quality things that maybe their competitors aren't. And then, um, so in addition to quality, look at also innovation. So what are they doing that's, that's innovative compared to the, the, the competitors? So those are probably the three things I kind of look at a bit or energy level, quality and innovation. And I think you get, you kind of get a sense of those three when you, when you go in there. From the, from the directors and from the key employees. So from, from your perspective, and I'm sure Stephen and Mark would probably agree, is that one of the best things about going to AGMs is getting that, that qualitative knowledge, you know, getting stuff that you don't just see on paper that you can then, you know, confirm once you're there and make sure your math is right, so to speak. Yeah, but you know, that, that actually but, is, it, it can be, you know, sorry to cut you off there, Bobby. No, no, no. Yeah, to interject briefly, you do have to be careful because, you know, typically the CEO of a company is a salesman. He's the chief salesman or, or oh, saleswoman. That's how they get to that role. And so mm -hmm. this is the value of kind of going year after year after year and having a perspective on competitors and the industry as well, because you can be fooled by language. <laughs> you can be fooled by the stories they tell. 
that don't actually follow through. And the qualitative aspect I think that Andy's referring to as well is, look, you do get a sense of the energy, you get it, absolutely. And that's, a, that's definitely a reason to interact with uh, employees, management, and the board. Uh, and, but you need to follow up uh, to make sure, and, or to you know, compare past statements from past years that they actually follow through on what they say. And uh, look, you mentioned Elon Musk earlier. <laughs> I mean, you know, we, we might as well kind of troll this a little bit here because everything is we're going to do this in two years, we're going to do this in three years, and these things, you know, just haven't. Certain things have come about, so no disrespect to that. But uh, some of the promises are so overbearing and, and overpromised that uh, if you were a more sober shareholder, you would not put up with uh, that that kind of um, puffery. Right. And so with a smaller company, like yeah, with a smaller company, that's not Elon, <laughs> Elon can get away with it. You know, the little manufacturing company, that's a 20, $30 million micro cap, <laughs> nano cap is not going to no be way. able to get away with it. And, uh, you know, as a potential shareholder or a shareholder, that that's a good way to, um, to, to analyze a company. No, you know what, Stephen, you're going right on the track. I was, I was, I was just going to ask too, is like, you know, you go there, you know, you're looking at this qualitative and, you know, there could be those days where you're at the AGM where the CEO or management's like, all right, everybody, you're on your game. All right. You know, go back to just sleeping if you want later, but you got to be on your game today. We got shareholders coming, you know? So there's almost this feeling as a shareholder when you go to these things where you, you want to go in unbiased and very like, all right, let's see, let, you know, don't get too excited. But it's almost, I mean, how do you avoid having that confirmation bias when you do go to these things? You know, not just on the numbers that you've done going in to then confirm like, oh, my, my math, I think I'm on the right track. But then also on the qualitative side. I mean, Mark, you know, let, let's, let's, what, what do you think about that? How do you yeah, avoid that confirmation I mean, bias? Yeah, I think, I mean, some of the reasons, you know, if I could just backtrack a little bit to, to go to the AGMs, like I'm a big believer in going to AGMs, especially for, let's, you know, as Andy said, these no, a thousand of companies might have been half a dozen. I think for your like bigger holdings, like it's a must if you can. Um, you know, one some of the reasons why you might go. I think interacting with directors. I think that's a great way to get differential insights on the company. Um, you know, ask them. You know, as Andy said, why they're excited, why they're in the board, um, you know, what do they think of like the company's outlook or competitors. Some of the more established businesses that have been around for a while, I find. The, the CEO founder might have moved into the chair position and there's a, you know, a CEO in there running it, you know, to, so you would get very rarely get to interact with the chairman, the founder of the business and to then be able to chat to the founder, you know, that's not an insight that most investors will ever get other than his, you know, chairman's letter in the, in the annual report. The other good thing about going to HMs, you meet other investors who are already invested and, you know, you can't find these people sometimes, you know, as good as Twitter is in Fintway, and I'm a big Twitter user, um, you know, that's another place where you can swap ideas, swap theses, you know, insights they might have, especially if they're from the industry that the company operates in. You know, I find, you know, you go to these things and you might find a guy who's like a solar engineer who's invested in some kind of green energy company. Well, you know, he's got a much bigger insight into the industry than I have. Um, so that's another reason I like going to AGMs. Um, and, you know, that qualitative thing, um, I think it's slightly different between Australia and America from what I can guess or gather from what you guys are. 
almost no company holds their AGM at their registered office or their place of business in Australia. They're always, you know, in some hall or function room at a hotel or whatever. Very, very rare you'll get a, an AGM. So that kind of, you know, walking the shop floor, getting a tour of the facility, that wouldn't really happen in an Australian context. I think that might be a slight, like, culture difference. Um, any, yeah, Australian, quality- any Australian CEOs listening, maybe you know, differentiate yourself, do that, you know, but I, yeah. I, sorry, I cut you I, off. I mean, sometimes they do it at their auditor's offices, maybe the closest thing you get, but I would say, by and large, that's kind of interesting. All, <laughs> that's a yeah, whole by other. and large, they would, <laughs> by and large, they would, uh, you know, they do it uh, offsite. They don't rarely, I can't think of an AGM I've been to, like that's been onsite at the like company's office. Um, the quality, I think, I think definitely you can pick up on, culture the company i know maybe not in the agm sense but like on site tours like that's one of the things i find with like microcap ceos you know if they're walking around and they're like not paying attention to any of the staff or they sometimes don't even know the staff's name you know that's a massive red flag for me that this guy is like you know sitting up here on a pedestal and he's just like everybody else is just there whereas you know the good ceos they're walking around you pass somebody in the corridor they're like hey bobby hey steven you know this is steven he's our like head of sales or you know whatever they know everyone's name it just it's it's a, it's an, a slight indication you know this guy's invested he knows the nuts and bolts of the business and with microcap ceos you know from them to the frontline customer, you know, is not a big gap. You know, if, if you're in a Fortune 500, S&P 500 company, you know, the difference between the CEO and the frontline is like huge. There's enormous levels of uh, management in between. But I think at this, yeah, you can get a sense of that at the, at the AGM. You know, biases, we've got to guard against biases day in, day out. So, um, and I don't know anybody maybe that hasn't uh, been affected by bias, no, no matter how much they try and control for it. So I think, yeah, I'd agree with Andy. Going to the AGM is a way to qualitatively get an, uh, a feel for energy levels, culture, um, you know, what's the relationship between the CEO and the board? You know, you can also pick that up. Yeah, great point. And I want to, if I can elaborate on what Mark said of, meeting other shareholders and networking in that way. I mean, when I first started investing, I was a, I was a lawyer still before I started my firm. And I would go to some of these uh, AGMs with some smaller companies. And there were people, you know, this was before kind of Twitter was big and you had those interactions. So some people had blogs, you know, sometimes you'd have some emails just back and forth, email lists. Sometimes you'd talk on the phone and, uh, that was an opportunity to meet some of these investors in person for the first time. And some of them now, it goes back 15 years for me, uh, plus that some of the people I actually met at some small cap and micro cap AGMs. And those people have not only been close friends, but some of them, I mean, Thomas Brazil, I remember meeting at, uh, this was maybe seven or eight years ago at a small cap uh, company AGM, and he's on the board of our company now. You know, that was the first opportunity for me to meet him in person. And, and there are a number of other, I mean, there's dozens and dozens of people who I, I consider, um, you know, people I trust, can rely upon, can I call up at any time for advice that I first met in person at, at the AGMs. And then on the totally other end of the spectrum, you think of a Berkshire Hathaway, right? So you're not gaining any new information necessarily from a Berkshire meeting or a Fairfax meeting, but it's the idea that you know, it's, it's like going to church. It's a good reminder, right? And there's something a little bit different 
about doing it in person compared to even, even it's been streamed the last few years. And there's something about being in that crowd. It's like going to a live sporting event or a live music event that you feel the energy of the crowd. It helps to reinforce when you have so many long-term shareholders that are so disciplined and, and Buffett's uh, rationalism and Munger's rationalism just project out there. You know, you get that emotional feeling and commitment that it, you just don't get quite as much through a streaming or video or audio. And, and so, you know, both ends of the spectrum, networking, meeting people that you might have interacted with or meeting them for the first time who are kind of like-minded in the things that you're interested in, the companies you're interested in. And then on the, you know, on the other kind of barbell end of it uh, is feeling that discipline uh, for, a, a, you know, for a CEO, for, for Buffett that you really uh, trust and admire and we're inspired by, you know, this is a way to uh, kind of, you know, replenish your own discipline and rationalism and, and it helps to, helps to absorb that in person. Absolutely. I mean, just, and as a quick follow-up to that, because I, I'd say, you know, a lot of people listening to this might be on the retail side, you know, and not, not all of them have, have the ability to, you know, take a couple of days, go to an AGM, you know, hope, I mean, they might be with, with a company maybe that's local and take a couple hours, go to the AGM, you know, listen to a couple of things and then leave, you know, but maybe what are some things that as a retail investor that doesn't have, that isn't a professional that, you know, can't just go and hop on a plane and go check out the AGM. What are some things that they can look for and, and, and suss out from a virtual AGM, which has been kind of the norm, as you said, for the last couple of years? Hey, floor is open to everybody. Yeah, I think one of the things for, for the retail guys, I mean, you know, it's the same, I think, for professional investors. You know, if, if you, you know, based in New York and your company AGM is in, in LA, you know, it's going to be, a fairly decent sized position for somebody to fly, you know, across the country to, to go to it. So, you know, not all professional investors go to it. And uh, I'm presuming now, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen or Andy, um, you know, in Australia, all the AGMs tend to happen in November, uh, which is like a big AGM one. So then you have like two or three AGMs that are happening on the same day, you know, maybe even at the same time. So you got to pick and choose which one you can go to. On the streaming side, you know, listen to the questions that are being asked. I think that can give you an insight to what other investors are thinking about, or which might be different to your thesis. I think that's one of, you know, the line of questioning. Uh, the other things they can get out is to like look after the event. Um, <clears throat> you know, I always run my eye down over the percentages of for and against abstain or whatever. Um, and that can give you an insight if there's disquiet among shareholders, uh, maybe more so on the institutional side if you know because you know routinely you know directors they get you know 90 plus percentages in terms of like re-elections if they're if they're already on the board you see that like dropping down or the other big kind of key one for me is actually the abstain number if you see a huge abstain number that's an institutional shareholder who's like i'm not voting against the company but I'm not voting for you. It's kind of like a, a pseudo kind of covert message to say, hey, the next time these like, you know, whatever, five, 10 million shares, you know, we might be going against you. Um, so that can also be uh, something to watch out for on the retail side. But yeah, retail, like, like professional people, you know, the professional guys aren't going to every single AGM because for cost and sometimes just like pure logistics that, it, you know, it'll, it'll clash with another AGM at the possibly exact same time. One info, information gathering you can do that's actually some, usually actually 
stronger than going to AGM, which is to see the company's products kind of in the wild. So, so if the software company, you could ask for a demo, you, know, you can do that remotely, even pose as a customer. Um, if it's a consumer product company, you could go see their products in retail or I, I go to trade shows, for example, and that's often usually a great way to, because you can see all these companies stacked up that compete against each other and kind of interview them all in kind of one day or one hour even. Um, but if it's an industrial company, then it's much harder. And usually then you kind of have to go to the AGM and you kind of have to get the, the actual hands-on tour of the, of the products. So this last AGM I went to was a, there's an aerospace manufacturing company, but the CEO actually gave me a tour, including looking at their circuit designs through a microscope. So it was, it was pretty cool for me because it was all this patented stuff that actually is used on in the, by the Air Force and Navy uh, that I could see. Um, so um, th th that would be an example of when you kind of have to go into the companies to see in the industrial companies. I could yeah, see Andy. So oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. Go, go ahead. Go ahead, Bobby. I, I was just going to make a quip. I could see Andy at CES just going booth to booth, you know, with, with his huge yellow pad saying, <laughs> okay, okay. Putting the schematics down. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, I, I mean, I, I did go to like actually two or three trade shows for Expel. So I went to the tint yep. tint off and the the uh, SEMA show, and so yeah, it's cool because then you can see the energy level of each booth. That's also a way to assess energy. So, if, like, if the competitors, if their if their guys are sitting down eating donuts versus the Expo guys are all standing up all day and with high energy and. It's, you, you can kind of get a sense of energy level if it's from the trade shows too. Mm -hmm. I couldn't agree more. Well, to Mark's, to Mark's point earlier, in the U.S., most of the meetings are, are kind of late, late uh, April, May, or through May, through June. Uh, and that's basically based off the fiscal year. So once the 10K is filed, um, or once the quarter's end, or annual um, is, is, is filing. You have so, so many days according to the SEC rules. So it depends on when your fiscal year ends and most of them are 1231 in the US here. But, uh, you know, that makes it a little bit challenging because it, same, same thing in Mark, they might all be in November in Australia and maybe they're all in May in the US and there's a lot of them going on at any given time. And it, it can be uh, a tough to go to. I mean, especially as a retail investor, right? You're, it's going to be difficult to fly across the country if you have a small investment you know, the flight might cost half of your investment or something like that. And, uh, but that being said, I mean, online, most of these companies do put up shareholder presentations. Sometimes they'll put up audio based on the presentations, even if they don't do kind of quarterly conference calls. Uh, they might have an investor day type of thing uh, that, that's worthwhile to look at. I think what I would recommend is the presentations kind of to my point earlier right where you want to compare past statements to future work and then if there's some deviation is there an explanation for it or is it just glossed over and forgotten and so you can look at the presentations uh sometimes you know every year whenever they first go back five years or seven years and when you first start following a company i would say when you receive that presentation go ahead and save that in your own files because it might disappear from the interwebs when the new one pops up, um, or you might have to go through the SEC filings if, if an 8K was filed, which is not always required to be filed for those presentations. Uh, but, but look at it, compare it year over year. And then if there is a deviation and there's not some explanation, you know, call the company and ask and see what their answer is. Uh, so, you know, there's still opportunities to, we're in a remote virtual environment, but it's still opportunities even when actual 
live AUM, uh, AGMs are going on for a, a retail shareholder to follow along and you know, have the opportunity to kind of hold, hold management or the board accountable in some way. Absolutely. So now I want to play. Oh, sorry. We should, by the way, we should probably also draw the line as to what's too much information gathering at AGM. So, um, because um, you know, usually when I show up to these, if I'm like one of the only shareholders that shows up, um, I will not be allowed to actually be in the room when they're voting, uh, or they're or they're on on certain matters. So, there is usually a line that, as a shareholder, I can't usually cross some just some information ga uh, gathering that just the board level would only be able to see. So, I mean, my goal as, as an investor would I mean to be, to, to know almost as much as a board member without being a board member. <laughs> but um, the, and if some people have said, hey, is that inside information, Andy? Like, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> but, um, you know, under mosaic theory, right? It's kind of what, one of the things we study with CFA is, um, you can put together a mosaic kind of of the company, meaning you can collect information from different places and you basically put this mosaic together of your view of a company. So the inside information is really, I mean, two examples that have been prosecuted. One was knowing the earnings of a company before it's released and then acting on that or knowing a buyout before it's announced and acting on that. So um, generally, you know, what I do is I'm just I'm just using mosaic theory to kind of gather information, but I can't cross that line and go into any of these the, the board meetings. You know that's a good point, Andy, because sometimes when you're talking to management or below that are not as adept with investor relations, they may accidentally share information that they're they should, really should not be sharing and you should not uh, be hearing. And, and it's important for someone like you and us. You know, a retail investor might not know otherwise, but. But for those of us, if the if if that employee starts to go down that route, you just you know sometimes it helps to put up the yield sign and explain it to them. Yeah, I mean it must be tough though when you're at the at the meeting too, because is it on you as the investor or is it on them as the company to say, hey Andy, my way not side for you know thirty minutes, you know we got to do this, and then you can come back in. I mean, who who is it or is it on you sometimes to be like, you know, I think I'm gonna wait outside for like thirty minutes, like. <laughs> you would think it would be on the company, right, Andy? I mean, you've been, you've been in those situations. I mean, Steve, I'm yeah. assuming everybody here is. Well, the risk is, yeah, probably both sides. Well, the, the Reg FD is pretty strict, so they, um, they can't let a lot of shareholders in on some of those things. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's more, I think, the one-on-one, -on -one, maybe side conversations that I'd be worried about. Yeah, you know, yeah. You're, you're just kind of talking to some of the employees that are around. And, you know, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, when we hold our, our shareholder meeting, we have – you know, some management that just, they're just not involved in other parts of the business or a couple of different businesses. And we do have a conversation before the meeting uh, every year to say, look, you know, you can certainly, we want you to interact with shareholders, talk with them, but you know, we have to have to be aware uh, people here are here to gather information. And uh, there is certain information that's not already been publicly released. You know, you, you just can't share. And if you have any right. problem, refer them over to us. But, you know, I mean, part of the reason to go to these meetings is to sleuth as a shareholder. And, uh, you know, so <laughs> there's some gamesmanship and things, you know, related to that. But on the other hand, you know, if you're talking most of these um, management, kind of lower management and below, they're, they're not going to know uh, some confidential information anyway, unless it's a really big deal, like a buyout or a divestiture right. or some, some, something like that. So let's play devil's advocate real quick here, because one of the, the topic that Mark, you know, I, I think I meant Mark sent this in, 
you know, the, the other type part of this question, not, we're not, we're going to get to the, the implement shareholder activism, but the question was, are they dead? You know, is our AGMs really that important? I think collectively we, I think we made a pretty good case as to why they're very important and vital as a shareholder. If you're looking at a company and holding it, you know, at all, whether it's the long term or short term, short term, it's a great information gathering opportunity. But you know, for for argument's sake, why could it be perceived that an AGM or or public company putting on an AGM is not that necessary? Uh, um, yeah, I'll take that one. I mean, I think Berkshire's AGM proves that they're not dead. I mean, you know, if AGMs are done well, then they definitely will resonate with shareholders and look, not every company is Berkshire, but you know, you can still put on a, a, a good AGM disclosure, not a shareholder. Um, but I think with, uh, in Australia at least, um, and this might be a case now when they were still in hard lockdown, but a few companies which have a, an odd year end. So uh, to Stephen's point, you know, most companies in Australia match the tax year end in Australia, which is 30 June. So that's why they all fall in November. But a few companies who have December year ends then were having their AGMs in April, May. And, you know, I dialed into a few of them just to see what the virtual experience would be like. And I would say there was probably more engagement than there would have been if they had a ran a, an in-person one. So that also proves to me that if you can tailor it to be more shareholder friendly like you'll definitely like get the response back um, and you know a, a company i used to work for we ran um closed end funds in australia uh, and you know the agm was always like a, a very big deal for our shareholders and i mean now i mean the funds have grown to, uh, since i left and um, but I, I spoke to the chairman the other day and he said you know they're big for their main, they've got about five or six closed-end funds. But for the main closed-end fund, the biggest one, the one that's been around for 20 years, they have over a 1,000 people attend their AGM now. You know, a 1,000 people at any AGM for any company is, you know, it's a hell of a lot of people these days. So I definitely don't think they're dead. Um, but I think companies need to focus on making them a bit more shareholder-friendly and a bit more uh, engaging rather than this prosaic, you know, just getting the business of the meeting out of the way. We do the votes. Okay, you know, you know, let's move on. Yeah, I wonder next year, you know, th this year is kind of the first year where we've had a lot of these virtual ones. And I think a lot of companies, uh, you know, were not fully prepared for that with how you do the structure. I mean, maybe logistically things were fine, but, uh, you know, how, how are they going to, for companies that wanted to encourage kind of that interaction and questions, I mean, I had a, a lot of ones that I called into this year. There were just no questions at all. There was no interaction. There was a little bit of a presentation, you know, fine. Uh, but I could see that next year if we're, I would imagine in the U.S., it'll still be encouraged or at least possible to do the virtual ones instead of in person. And maybe that'll be something that, you know, now is, is, is going forward is a major option. And I, I hope that the companies that do want that interaction can determine a structure for the meeting to encourage it because it really could be a valuable thing. Um, you know, whether it's a live stream kind of like Berkshire in that way where there's, there's a Q&A and we have a, a way for, um, you know, even to have video involved. I mean, the ones I've called into, there might be video for the management, but it would be nice to have video uh, like a, a, a mass Zoom or something uh, for the shareholders uh, themselves. So you can have, you know, kind of see name to a face and see the, um, you know, that, that type of interaction. But uh, I don't know, it might be a bridge too far. We'll see. Andy? 
thoughts on this? Um, well, I'm, I'm trying to look back at the what, what, what's a beautiful AGM versus an ugly AGM. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, That's a good the, question. <laughs> what's actually kind of scary is the, probably the most ugly AGMs look beautiful, but they're ugly underneath, meaning um, I've had a couple of AGMs where the company was, was, was clearly showing off. Like um, one, was, one was a mining company I visited that um, they were giving free helicopter rides around, <laughs> around the mountain. And uh, they flew a plane overhead, over to the mine to, they was doing a survey, which they usually do like once a year maybe, but they chose to do it just on the annual shareholder day to kind of show off. So a plane flying overhead, free, free helicopter rides. And uh, they were just really kind of showing off. And maybe, maybe some of the hedge fund guys like that. But um, later on, the CEO actually ended up, ended up kind of lying to, to shareholders. And this company later was actually restructured. So, so I don't know. I'll just give an example that sometimes the show-offs, um, it may appear as a beautiful AGM. But there's a level of kind of uh, pageantry that you have to kind of look through. And that kind of gets to Steve's uh, point about kind of tracking them over time and kind of seeing, measuring them over time and also seeing how direct their answers are to certain questions. Um, you know, if, if you ask a very basic question, they give you kind of a tangential answer. That's usually a big red flag too. So um, I'm just sharing that kind of from, I would kind of sh share that that's probably an ugly AGM to watch out for is, is the pageantry. Can well, you know, having you know, <laughs> having like a, a hundred armed guards with AK-47s as you're walking <laughs> into the mine or fly, you're yeah, yeah. flying over it and then landing and going into the mine and, um, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I was, I, the first thought to my mind was like, this has to be a junior mining company with like sub 50 million market cap with like maybe 2 million in the bank. But no, no, let's go all out for our yeah. AGM and, and rent a helicopter all day. You know, we're going to do a capital raise. So that, you know, that's just part of the transaction cost of the future capital raise. Right. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, let's, let's, uh, let's segue to the second half of this question, which was, you know, how do AGMs as a result of them, you know, can you implement shareholder activism, you know, as a participant, um, either, you know, uh, let, let's just, let's just open it up to that point right there. So, yeah. you know, let me, since I proposed it, let me kind of give you the feedback or maybe some context about where I'm coming from in that. So I think this goes back to the earlier point, you know, you know, listening to the questions. And I think it's one of the few times where, you know, you can ask questions to the directors and the chairman about, you know, issues that you might be unhappy with, whether it's around capital allocation or capital management or, you know, company performance that's not going to the CEO because maybe you've been banging your head on quarterly earnings calls and not getting anywhere. So, you know, it's to raise the issue. And I find, you know, activism, it, it, it doesn't just come out of nowhere generally. It's usually as a result of kind of long-term underperformance. So, you know, the first sign will be these questions coming up. The second sign will be, you know, you know, people starting to vote against the re-election of directors or against the, the REM report if they think, you know, executive pay is high. Um, and from an Australian point of view, I mean, uh, Stephen and, and Andy might be able to clarify on this. So, you know, if you're an over 5% shareholder, you know, you can 
cable motions, you know, proposed directors, um, all of that. But if you want to call an EGM in Australia, so outside of the normal AGM, you, the activist shareholder, need to pay for the full running costs of that event. And I mean, that can run into thousands of dollars. So, you know, a lot of activists like the AGM because it doesn't cost them anything to start getting the pressure on and expressing their views. Whereas if you want to completely roll the board, uh, A, it's a high-risk strategy that might not uh, happen, and B, it could end up costing you a lot of money because that's on the on the activist's account, not on the company's account because it's deemed outside the like, normal course of business. All right. I've kind, of kind of found a rule of thumb, which because I'm investing across public and private, and usually if, if you own about 5%, you can ask to be a board observer. I mean, that's especially in private companies. Um, and if you own 10%, you can usually ask for a, a board seat. And I've kind of, I found this kind of consistent I've, I've seen in the in across public and private. Um, I just yeah, kind of I would say Australia you need to be 20% if you're going to push for a board seat. But that's maybe another kind of cross-cultural thing. Yeah, and it depends, you know, who if there's a major shareholder out there, a, a lot of times, especially with smaller companies, you have the owner-operator who, you know, might own 30, 40, 50% of the company. And so, uh, you know, it's, it's a different dynamic. You might own 5 or 10% and you're just not going to um, get that representation. But it also depends. I mean, be careful what you wish for. <laughs> you know, if you own 5, 6, 8, 10% of the company and now you do want some kind of, um, representation there and now you're going to be limited I mean you have to you have to then be committed to this company over the long term because uh, you're really going to be limited in terms of changing or selling selling down your position or getting out for some reason uh, you know you can in my perspective as kind of a non-activist uh, as someone who maybe just wants to be able to have a conversation a productive conversation with management and the board when appropriate is you know, you want to build that trust and the positive relationship, even if you disagree with them, because, you know, most of the time, you know, one, do you want to be invested in a company that where your interests are not aligned? Generally not. Now, if there's significant undervaluation and you think you can make some real change, go for it, do your thing. Um, you know, realize it is going to be a commitment, financial commitment, time commitment, stress commitment, et cetera, et cetera. Some people are into that, uh, more power to you. That's not my thing. But on the other hand, some companies are just underperforming somewhat, but they still have a great product. You think they, you know, they still have a lot of positives. Management could be good and they just need some advice. And you want to be able to build that relationship that uh, you can, you can, share information, you can talk to them, you can get updates, you can get a, a better understanding of their strategy and how they're implementing it and potentially holding, holding them accountable in that way without necessarily being on the board. You know, you can, you can be a, a, a connected to the company and, you know, it, sometimes that takes time. That's one of the reasons to go to the annual meetings too, is to build those relationships with the other directors. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think we would have all seen, you know, activism has been you know slowly moving down the the market cap uh, pyramid over time and it's much more prevalent than it was say 10 years ago um so that's another reason i kind of you know brought it up as and you know the first place it's going to rear its head i think is at the agm um in a public format i mean there might be letters shooting across between the board and these investors uh, ahead of time also not an activist um but uh yeah I've kind of 
witnessed a few battles and, and, and been in a few battles uh, when I, I worked at my previous uh, role. And funny, one of the great benefits of the AGM, this is like a, a war story. So we had been, one of the funds that we managed had been pushing this company to do a kind of big capital return. We like couldn't see like why they were going another way and this had been going on for about a year. Uh, we felt we had a strong position with some other shareholders to maybe uh, re-elect or sorry, get some of our directors onto the board at the AGM. Anyway, we go to the AGM, chairman stands up, announces a huge kind of capital return, kind of everything that we kind of asked for pushing it. The, he announces this. It hasn't, uh, I quickly checked my phone, hasn't been announced to the, to the exchange. So now we're, anybody who's at the meeting now has got a, a heads up on the rest of the market. I immediately, me and the portfolio, we immediately run out of the room. We're on the phone to the brokers trying to like buy is like, well, I'm calling one, he's calling another one. Why is what you, you know, the circuit breaker kicks in, but I think we accumulated another like 150,000 shares in the space of three minutes uh, before the circuit breaker kicked in. And then about five minutes later, the actual announcement from the chairman hit hit the wires and then but the stock was already up like 30 40 percent but we didn't care because we knew it was you know when you did the maths it should have been up like 50 percent so that's also a very good reason to go to AGM. you know it's it's interesting how how slow sometimes information moves i mean i remember and i, I was on with uh with, with bobby um it was like a couple of weeks ago a month ago or so about this company called alj regional holdings and uh this was back in 2013, they made an acquisition, they announced it. And uh, it, it basically should have like doubled the value of the company uh, immediately. And you had like six hours <laughs> for this to go through because that not that many people were following the company. The press release came out and it hadn't been really picked up. And the company, uh, it was basically the same price six hours later, the last two hours of the day, it doubled in price. And over the next three weeks, it doubled again, <laughs> you know, and it's really amazing that I think, especially these smaller companies, if you have alerts set up, uh, kind of immediate Google alerts, even the SEC filings usually come a little bit later, even from the news. And if they don't release the news in non-market hours, uh, you really have, a, have an advantage to, to sit there. I don't advise you to sit there and stare at your screens all day for things like this, because maybe it only happens once every three or four years. But when it happens, man, you got to go all in and trust yourself and, and uh, trust that the market will catch up to it. Andy? Well, um, kind of getting back to the, uh, you know, activism or going on a board. I've been thinking about this too is, um, um, you know, when is the right time to go on a board? And, and uh, I would say like less than 10% of, of fund managers and family offices are, are activists in any way, even plan B activists. Um, usually they only step in if there's like an issue in the company. But um, I do feel that, um, so kind of two reasons that I think to, to potentially go on a board. One is that um, as a kind of a plan B activist, you're seeing maybe some, uh, you know, it's happened sometimes in family controlled companies where they kind of treat the company as their piggy bank and maybe there's some high compensation or they're kind of controlling a lot of decisions. I've seen some family offices and funds kind of fight that, including the, the Gates office where I, I worked. One of the positions I put on for them was uh, Schnitzer Steel. Uh, we bought 10% of this company in the late 90s. 
and a few years after I left, they um, Cascade actually got active and put someone on the board and kind of fought that family a little bit because they were getting too aggressive on on how they were treating the company. So that's kind of one reason to go on the board as if to, as a plan B to kind of protect the minority shareholders. And maybe the, the second reason would be um, if you can actually add value to the company. So, um, and this is my opinion, but I kind of feel that if you're approving compensation or approving the audit, you're adding value, but you're not really adding significant value. Like to me, adding value is like really helping strategic direction of the company or like helping really preserve the company's culture in some way. So um, I think about that a lot. Like I've been on the board of a private company, but not a public, but I wouldn't probably go on the board unless one of those two scenarios, either plan B was felt was needed or I could really add value to the company. Hey, real, just to follow up real quick, you know, from again, from the retail investor perspective, because more often than not, these are investors that are, you know, not going to be acquiring a, a significant, you know, percentage of the company or, or of the shares outstanding, uh, or excuse me, on the float, you know, and, and so, but at the same time, they want to express maybe a potential grievance that they have or an issue. And management can easily just be like, okay, yeah, thank you. Thank you for thank you for expressing your concern. I really appreciate that. Next, you know, so what are ways in which, as you know, mom and pop retail investor, you can really get your voice heard, and and not just when you're investing in small micro cap, nano cap companies, but just really in any public company. You know, what's the approach so that you can have you know a legitimate point actually be heard? Um, yeah, I'd take that one for, I mean, I think for the retail guys, I think, you know, just working through the proper channel straight off is like kind of the best, the best bet. So like if they have a dedicated IR firm or an internal investor relations person, like go to them first and, you know, don't try and be emailing the chairman or, or the CEO. So I think that's the first point. Um, raising your points consistently uh, and trying to garner, you know, support from, uh, other shareholders, you know, you can let them know, say, I've spoken to a lot of other kind of retail shareholders, you know, we kind of feel the same. You can use it in your voting, okay, it doesn't maybe, um, it doesn't maybe count for a lot uh, in the grand scheme of things with, you know, institutional concentration these days. But then you can, you can look at the institutions and you can, if you see BlackRock, Vanguard, uh, Fidelity, whoever is on, you know, the top of that list of the top 20 shareholders and you know they're fund manager, asset manager, email their corporate crew and say like, you know, what are you guys doing in terms of um, executive compensation, ESG issues, you know, whatever you think could be improved at the company. I think this is the key point. I think, is it something that's going to improve company culture, performance, um, you know, governance at the company? If it's just, uh, you know, something that you're, um, a one-man band issue on, um, then, you know, you're never going to get far. But if it's part of a wider debate that's happening, um, you know, you can get onto the big fund managers and ask them and say, hey, look, I'm a shareholder in here, you are a shareholder, what's your company's position? You know, you can chuck $1,000 into one of their mutual funds and say, hey, I also, I mean, <laughs> on, on uh, you know, I'm an investor in one of your funds and, you know, what, what is your policy on, on XYZ? Uh, for the, for for this company, so I think you know that's how retail investors can 
you know, try to get their, their message across. And, it, you know, coming back to the activism thing, um, the few battles I've been involved in uh, from my previous role, you know, we had a lot of retail investors who were contacting us because they saw us as the kind of forerunner or the kind of point person on this campaign and they'll say you know we support you or we don't support you or like you know what we you know we we often got both sides in terms of emails and phone calls um so you know in getting your point across can be voting with the activists or if you don't believe it you're getting your point across can be voting with the board when you know these topics come up my advice would be don't don't be a martyr sell <laughs> move on it's not worth the brain damage you're not going to make a difference. <laughs> That's what I would say. You're, if you're a retail investor, you don't have the ability to own a significant chunk of the company. The chance of you really being able to make a, a, a big difference is it's, it's, it's infin, infinitesimal. <laughs> you have to team up with someone else, but why go through the brain damage? Move, find a better company find a better company where you're going to be aligned or ride the coattails of an activist that is doing the same thing that needs to be done for one of those companies and just ride their coattails, ride a coattail. It doesn't have to be an Ackman. It could be a Stillwell. It could be a Peter Kamen. You know, these types of companies, Lloyd Miller before he passed away, that would do these with smaller companies that you can ride along and do that. But you know, if you have another job, if you're retired, you know, if you have, there's other things in your life you should be focused on and you don't want to be dedicating a full-time basically job or position to attempting to be an activist when you don't, you don't even have the experience to do that. I would say, leave it to the professionals, either coattail them or move on. I mean, there's better investments out there. Go, go look for that hunter bagger. Stop wasting your time trying to, you know, make change for a three bagger. Steven, you're killing my dream of being a corporate raider for Halloween this year. I mean, that's, you know. Well, if you on. want to be a, the, the costume for a corporate raider is a bunch of knives in yourself, basically. <laughs> Not worth the yeah. brain damage. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to walk away sometimes. I mean, even I've, and uh, like I actually own almost about 5% of an Australian company. And, but the, uh, this family controlled 60%. And they basically didn't even return calls of minority shareholders. Even, even me, I barely got a call back, you know, after many weeks of pestering them. So um, they had like six different related party transactions they were doing. And it, it was trading like three or four times earnings. And if they had just simply um, cleaned that up and the stock would, would probably triple, but like they just didn't want to listen to minority shareholders. And uh, I even went, I went to a, a trade show even to confront the management. <laughs> And it was almost got physical. But, I mean, so I just basically, um, you know, had to say, this is not worth it. So I, to, I basically sold my position and moved on. So um, it, it, I guess if, I, if, it's, if it's not worth it for me, then it, it, I'm sure it's not worth it for any individual investor. <laughs> Uh -huh. Hold on. If, if that's any indication, they must've got you pretty pissed. Cause you're like one of the nicest people I've ever met. So like for oh, yeah. them to really get you that fired up, that that's, that's, that's pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, well, basically the, the family said, <laughs> said, don't talk to anyone in our company again. And it uh -huh. almost like with a clenched fist and like in my face. So I was like, Whoa. <laughs> so, um, yeah, was, okay. So it was on their end getting all aggressive. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if I would, I'm not going to wrestle with this Australian guys. 
Fair enough. Fair enough. You're like, we'll we'll settle this with some kangaroo boxing. <laughs> you bring your kangaroo, and I'll bring my kangaroo. <laughs> oh my oh my You're like, wait till I call my friend Stephen over here. He's like, ex-military. he can, oh, yeah, he, yeah. Can, he can take yeah, over. I need someone like that in my corner. <laughs> yeah, you've got to come in with an entourage. That's how you can actually that company, that mining company with the tours. You just have to engage a couple of their security guards, bring them down with you down to the, the Australian annual meeting. And you need some heavies <laughs> behind you for sure. But that, you know, to, it's a joke, but to be honest, that's what it takes in some of these cases uh, with these, these activist positions, especially when it's family owned and they're kind of running it for their, for their own benefit and not the benefit of, of the shareholders. It's a really tough situation. And look, Andy's a professional and he's gonna be frustrated in some of these situations. So if you have another job and you're attempting to do this and you're doing it on the side as a retail investor, I mean, yeah. good luck. It's not worth the trouble. It's like, it's like wrestling with pigs, basically. Move on. Fair enough. All right, guys, I think, I think we're pretty much there. You know, so let's, uh, let's get everybody's final takes uh, as we close out this week here. Uh, I guess, what is this, uh, the first week of the, the fourth quarter? Uh, so, um, yeah, give us your final takes going into this uh, final quarter of the year and, uh, and where people can go and find more information. So we'll go, uh, we'll go counterclockwise again. So, Mark, start us off. Uh, yeah, so my, my new motto, I said before we came on air, survival is the new success in 2020. Um, so yeah, if you can get out this year, you know, positive performance on your portfolio or, you know, you've still got a job, your business is still intact. Um, it's been a good year and I think, you know, give yourself a, a pat on the back. Where to find out more about me, uh, coffeemicrocaps.com or probably Twitter is the best place to find me at um, C Microcaps for all things Australian microcap. Very good. Steven? Yeah, I, same advice here. Let's just get through this year and move on. <laughs> Godspeed to 2021. Uh, you can find me at willowoakfunds.com. Uh, I also run Arquitos Capital, A-R-Q-U-I-T-O-S. Uh, just Google it or go to arquitos.com. And uh, also active on Twitter, Steven with a V, uh, underscore Kiel, K-I-E-L. Look forward to talking with you. Thanks, Steven. And Andy? Yeah, I mean, some years kind of fly by and I feel like I don't age at all. And then some years uh, you know, creep by and I, I feel like I aged three years in one year. So that's kind of 2020 for me. So um, I'm also looking forward to next year. And, um, you know, I'm also, also trying to stay positive. And I, I actually went to my bookshelves and I've got 500 books, about half on business and investing and half on like spiritual topics. I was trying to figure out what's the best book for this topic of AGMs. And I was thinking it's probably Dale Carnegie's book, the how to win friends and influence people. <laughs> <laughs> because uh, basically I'm realizing that it's to criticize a company. It's, it, I was just saying, it's probably not worth it. Like you have to learn to, to make friends and, and that's really the way to kind of get closer to companies and closer to your investments. And, um, so I'm really trying to, to be positive <laughs> and uh, even though I'm frustrated with sometimes. Um, so anyway, you can find me just my name, um, Andy Prykshed on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. Very good. Well, again, my name is Robert Kraft. I'm your host. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. You can listen. Actually, you can watch every episode of the Investors Roundtable at youtube.com slash SNN Wire. And I promise... An audio-only version is coming soon. I'm working on a logo. We gotta, we're, we're getting a logo together. 
So that you would think that, you know, it, it takes a minute, you know, you got to make sure it looks nice. But anyways, with that, thank you all for joining me today. This is a lot of fun. And um, yeah, I look forward to our next one. Thanks, guys. I appreciate yeah, it. Thanks, thanks, Bobby. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Mark.